0: You're listening to Neurodiversity at Work. Welcome to today's episode, sponsored and powered by Dynamis Group. Recently honoured to be part of 300 years of leadership and innovation. We at Dynamis believe that business is a catalyst for positive impact in the world by building a bridge between the top leaders of today and the brightest leaders of tomorrow. We inspire them to do things they have never done before. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Keith Fraser. Now, Keith has been a superintendent uh, in the police force. He's headed up departments within the police and he has a fantastic career. He now is the chair of the Youth Justice Board in England and Wales. He's been commissioned by Number 10 Downing Street on race and ethnicity. Uh, And generally, he does some fantastic work uh, within the communities. And he's a champion of neurodiversity. And today, shares his journey and experiences as somebody who is neurodiverse. You're going to really love today's episode. We've saved an incredible one for you uh, to end the year as part of the festivities. Enjoy. I look forward to your feedback. Here we go. Keith. Welcome to the podcast. Incredible to have you on. I, I kind of, as we've mentioned, I kind of felt like you should have been on this podcast a long time ago. But that's kind of, we've saved you up. We've saved you up <laughs> for Christmas. So, <laughs> so that people can really enjoy uh, your, your background and experience. So, I mean, we were lucky enough to have you, Amanda and I, in, in our book as well, including our book. Um, And uh, I I love spending time with you and listening to uh, what you have to say. So I know the audience is going to love this today. Do you just want to let them know who you are, what you do?
1: Uh, you said my name already. I'm I'm Keith. Currently, I do a whole host of um, different things. Um, Chair of the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales. I also recently had an appointment from the Prime Minister last year to sit on a commission. On race and ethnic disparities, and that report's going into the government at the moment. As well as that, I support a number of um, charities in various different ways. And then before that, I was a police officer for 32 years, uh, worked in the Met and also in the West Midlands. And I was a senior police officer for about 14 of those 32 years. And also, most importantly, I'm a Brummie, born and bred in Birmingham, really proud of that. Brilliant! You can't forget that key bit of information.
0: <laughs> uh, it's it's the yeah it's the parts it's the, all the parts together that makes us whole, right?
1: Definitely, uh, and
0: definitely. I, I'm equally a, a proud a proud Welshman, Cardiffian, well bam, but there we go. We'll try, you know, kind of my my our accents probably give us away, right?
1: <laughs> I think so. I think so. I don't want to lose it. I did lose it a little bit when I went to London, but um, people say it's coming back now, so I'm getting my roots back
0: yeah I definitely say there's Cheekly uh coming back it's the good stuff so yeah uh, tell us a little bit about um the the what neurodiversity means to you then kind of how you came about um the term what your journey's been you know the roles um that you've done some really interesting uh senior roles um and some prominent roles uh, and how uh that has impacted uh on um i guess Your ability to do those jobs as being somebody who identifies as being neurodiverse.
1: Okay. Firstly, this this conversation is always, it gets easier to have this conversation, but it is a conversation I have to think about because the first thing I think about is that people will judge me as a result of it. And quite often, I think that people judge me not on what I can do, but they'll judge me on what I can't do as a result of it. So when I found out quite late on in life, in my mid-40s, it was a huge, huge um, decision for me that I wrestled with around whether or not I was, I was open about um, somebody who was dyslexic and somebody who'd been diagnosed with dyslexia. So that, that for me is that first thing is trying to get over that own, herd, that own internal hurdle for me about talking about dyslexia. It might sound like I talk about it quite easily. But I do think about it. I think about it very, very carefully before, because I know from my own personal experiences and also others, how quick people are to judge. A very, very quick kind of run through, I suppose, you know, at school, my spelling was always awful and it still is relatively awful. But, I, you know, I've developed strategies, I suppose, to kind of deal with that. But you still make the odds mistakes and those mistakes do make you laugh like i sent a text to my brother quite recently telling him that i wanted his advice around scraping the audio when i wanted to talk about scrapping the audi so it's things like that that you'll do that are quite funny but they come out every um every every well quite quite frequently so it was my spelling challenges um reading a lot lot slower i noticed than everybody else um, also missing out lines and stuff like that. When I really suddenly find myself part way down the um, page. If I'm if I'm reading if I'm reading something, I remember looking up in class as well, and then seeing everybody else had finished reading stuff. Or if I fast forward a bit to being a police officer and people reading stuff on the screen, they'd already done it, and I'm like thinking, good grief, have you all lost all read that already? And I'm still kind of battling on through it. So. It was mainly, and and um, I suppose jumping on a bit as well, when you're writing things down, I used to have something like almost like a block. It was in your head, but I just couldn't get my hand to say what was in my head. It was really kind of odd and a really hard thing to describe that it could take you an age just to write a sentence or or a paragraph because you just couldn't see the word on the page. You just couldn't get it out. Whereas hopefully if I'm verbalizing stuff, it's a bit bit more of a free flow. Or if something's been said back to me, I kind of get it straight away. I just couldn't translate what was in my head to being on, on the paper. As you say, um had a really good career, really and uh, really enjoyable career, really happy about where I'm at at the moment. I suppose some of the highlights, police officer for 32 years, worked in London, and also in the West Mids. So I've always wanted to be a police officer when I was a little boy from when I was eight, eight years of age. I've also got a degree, 2. one in business studies. Um, I was a head of learning development for 13,000 people in um, in, in, the West, in West Mids Police. And I've just started doing a master's in um, coaching and mentoring. And I almost find that I need to say that kind of stuff so that people realise that being somebody who, is a, who has an element of neurodiversity, because we're all neurodiverse in some way, doesn't or you know it shouldn't restrict your ambition in relation to what what you can do. So yeah, I've headed up departments within the um, police. I um, say head of learning development. You know, been the second in command of large cities, some of the largest cities in the country. Um, also been on call for you know sort of like two and a nearly two and a half million people also done the you know done the on-call function so looking after some of the most critical things that could happen for an area covering sort of like two and a half million people headed departments multi-million pound budgets looked after looked after people um from from that perspective also ran operations led firearms teams um and and now i'm the chair of the Justice Board for England and Wales—a position which I thought, good grief, how on earth is little old Keith doing that now? But it's something I am extremely passionate about. You know, it's the point from the Lord Chancellor, and it's quite amazing to think you kind of sat in the room, the Lord Chancellor being interviewed for a job. You know, this little boy from Birmingham, who <laughs> who had all of those, who had all of those challenges, and then recently, as I said last year, is given a commission by the um, by the Prime Minister. To look at race and race and ethnic disparity, and there's an awful lot of other stuff that's that's going on at, at the moment. So life's pretty, it's it's very very good, very very good, and it's people like yourself and um, Amanda that have enabled me to focus on the things I can do because I've only been, you know, from my diagnosis, I really thank those people who identified, you know, that I was dyslexic. But the initial conversations were about what you can't do and then overcoming overcoming that. Whereas I think that what you two do quite skillfully is you bring out what people can do. And that was the element I hadn't really focused on at all. I think that's given me more confidence about, not think, it has given me more confidence about me and um, and my ability. And also, since I have found out um i've moved on leaps and bounds really i think i'm doing a hell of a lot more able to do things more and do things more with confidence as a result of the fact i'm doing something positive about being dyslexic rather than it being something that holds me back i've actually seen the strengths of it but i understand how sometimes it can be challenging for other people around how i communicate sometimes for example and i can give you examples of that yeah, so that's
0: really interesting. Uh, and uh, I just wonder then, when, when is the point that you realised, Keith, there is something different? There is, you know, you mentioned some of the challenges that you faced. How did that materialise within your work? You know, in my simple mind, I'm thinking, did you go from Bobby on the beat to, to kind of into a more, you know, corporate role, a larger responsibility and it, and it happened then or somewhere else?
1: Tell us. I suppose i suppose the question you're asking is how, how did i get diagnosed as being dyslexic and was there a kind of eureka moment i suddenly thought oh this is what it must be um no there wasn't a kind of eureka moment for me because i'd always had those challenges and i'd always i'd lived with them since i was at school i was chairing meetings for for people for staff who were having challenges about being neurodiverse in in work and getting them supporting, but I never equated that to me. So the things that I did to overcome the challenges that I had was I went on speed reading programs, you know, and I'd do all sorts of courses to try and speed up what I was doing, but it was nothing at all to do with um, me thinking that I myself was dyslexical or anything like that. What happened was that I'd marked some promotion papers and one of these senior members of um, the force I was in at the Times said to my boss, what's happened to Keith? Um, Is he dyslexic? And so my boss then fed back to me and I thought, well, I don't think I am. And so they said, get yourself tested. I did. And um, the person that tested me said, you're not dyslexic. You've got above average intelligence and sent me away. and And I went away quite happy. I then later on I can't remember how many years later it might have been a year or so later I was assigned a business coach and that was just something to support around development for a senior person I suppose and over time after a few months they got to know me quite well and said Keith I think you're dyslexic and I went I'm not I've been tested already and they went Keith I think you are and I said to them okay I'll, I'll, get, I'll do three free tests over the weekend. And if they come back as um, positive, then I'll, I'll do something about it. I was a bit kind of, I didn't think I was. And so over the weekend, did those three tests, different types of tests. And you've guessed it, they all came back as strong likelihood of being dyslexic. So I went into work, got, you know, asked for a test again. They, they sent me off to somewhere different. I met two fantastic people who put me through quite a, an arduous and uh, it was really testing moment. And at the end of it, they said, you really are, you know, they came out, yes, you're dyslexic. And they came out with all the um, reasons as, t- as to why, what my challenges, my challenges were. And I told them about my previous experience and they were, re- they were absolutely horrified. They said that to link dyslexia with intelligence in the same sentence should not be done. And should not be said by anybody, anybody at all and that was a kind of a bit of a light bulb moment for me as well is that separation between intelligence and um, and being dyslexic i i didn't know that before to be to be to be quite to be quite honest um, i thought there might have been some kind of link and so that that was that kind of eureka moment for me i suppose that you're asking for was when those two ladies identified you know and said you were and they said Most often, the ways that that people are recommended to us or referred to us is because of their behaviour and because quite often young boys, their behaviour is not good and they get sent to them and then they find out that they're dyslexic and then their bad behaviour is often a cover for not being found out that they've got challenges in school.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's probably across the board within the school system being so busy, uh, we've had kind of the same feedback I've heard um, from teachers kind of the same feedback if the child is not uh, causing a problem then ultimately they're not a problem right therefore the the focus is not going to be on them which uh-huh. is which is really challenging especially you know when we consider girls you know as well being less likely to be the ones kind of causing problems in the classroom so i you know when i consider my children um, which is really frustrating but i think it's the the it, it, we're still in that position right where um, unless you're unless you're causing issues then you're going to be overlooked so what in that instance then how was it for you how did you feel about being somebody you know kind of in such a uh, an important role within the police and 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 how then you felt about kind of having that conversation at at that stage in your life with your
1: co-workers with
0: your boss with how did it impact you
1: um, I suppose a state of uh, confusion is probably the first first thing. What does this mean for me? And I was I was thinking quite a negative way to be to be honest. I was thinking what can't I do? What can't I do now? And it and also do I need to? T- and then it's also the converse as well as I was actually challenging myself with that statement to say, well, Keith, you've done all of this stuff. You didn't know that you were dyslexic so obviously you can do them so why should you be thinking that you can't do certain things now so i had two thoughts going on in my head i also thought as well that perhaps i'd be stopped from doing things as, as a as a result of it i suppose the first person i had a conversation with was my um, was my coach about it and these words ring in my ears and i think this is a real message i'd want to um, get get across to everybody else as well and he said to me, he said you need to take this seriously and make sure that the organisation know that you've got this, and also make sure that you that you ask for what you need. And you, because they said if you, he said to me, if you don't take it seriously, nobody else will. And I think that's absolutely critically important: is that people are not ashamed and not scared to say I need I need this or I am X. Because if you don't take it seriously, if you don't highlight it, others won't. Others will just carry on working with you in the normal way, or dealing with you in the not normal. Sorry, in the in the in the way that they that they think is the right way for you. The um, talking um, coming to work was it was quite a big deal for me. It was. Um, because again, I didn't know how I was going to be treated. My experience with my line manager wasn't, when I told my line manager, wasn't very good, considering that I was another senior colleague. I don't think their knowledge about it was, was brilliant. They questioned all of my operational capability for the last over 20 years. Also questioned what I could do in the future as a result of being dyslexic. It was a really really difficult and upsetting conversation really difficult and if i had if it hadn't been for my coach i don't know if i'd have really got through having that first um conversation in work regarding because my coach really supported me at that moment in time but there was also an hr manager who was aware that i'd had this conversation with my line manager and she was extremely supportive and also more understanding because the first thing that the um, line manager said to me when I told them that I was dyslexic was, is this covered by the Dis- Disability Discrimination Act? Which absolutely floored me, absolutely floored me. Whereas when I spoke to my successive line managers after that and told them I was dyslexic, the first thing they said was, what can we do for you? How, do, how, can, how can we help and, and, and do you need anything? And i found that those other line managers got far 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 more out of me than the um than the other individual initially um i don't know whether you want me to go on from there but that was what the initial coming out bit i suppose was was like it was um and then i suppose since then i've had that you know it's got less over time i then had this bit where i wanted to keep it quiet and not tell people in general because i was a bit worried about how people were going to view me but I also was, I really wanted, to, I really had this yearning to say something so that it would encourage others to, to get the help that they needed and also inc- get others to see that they shouldn't limit their aspirations as a result of um, somebody with a neurodiverse need or somebody that was on that spectrum somewhere.
0: That's interesting because something really and I think we've discussed this before, but um you know the the kind of disclosure pl- piece and the reasonable adjustments piece and I think you know what you said there is that uh through the support that you were given it's if you don't take it seriously then then nobody else will but on the on the flip side of that, even when you take it seriously uh and you challenge the status quo. It doesn't always mean you're going to get the, the level of respect you deserve back from the other side, which you didn't, obviously from a particular individual, which I think is probably what um, that's the biggest fear for a lot of us. Right. It's when you do decide mm-hmm. to disclose that the person at the other side um, doesn't doesn't get it, doesn't understand and and therefore sees it as um, a risk, an issue, um, a problem yeah. rather than an opportunity.
1: And that was the thing, that was being seen as a risk rather than, um, rather than an opportunity and what, what could we do to kind of support this individual and get the best out of them, but also forgetting what I'd achieved, which really, which really floored me. It was that part around it, a whole dismissal of um, what I'd done already. As, uh, from the It was almost like I was a different person once I'd uttered those words, I'm dyslexic, and then all of my previous history of what I'd done was now discredited and not of any not of any value or or consequence of so that was a real worry but as i say there was an hr manager there and she was excellent who guided i, I suppose is the best way to say the um, line manager <laughs> so we needed to look at things differently and uh, and that's when you go on this kind of journey of um, uh, as i say a mixture of challenges then i think we've touched on it before when we were talking before, because the the strategy that we had where I was at around diversity and inclusion was excellent. I thought it was really, really good. But I think where it had some challenges was then when it actually hit the coalface, so to speak. So the thing I would ask and uh, the challenge I would put to organisations, employers, and also people who lead in these areas is test your strategy on the ground. How does it actually work? because I saw disconnects between the IT department, between the diversity and inclusion department, I can't remember what their proper title was, and also HR, and then also the line manager. It didn't work together well. So even after four years, I still didn't get all the reasonable adjustments that the organisation had said that I had agreed that I needed. But I'm a pretty resilient person, so I managed to work through all of that. And you compare that to where I'm at now, and I've had those reasonable adjustments in in no time whatsoever that I that I needed. You know, done within. A, you know, it was an ask. It was a question from them, really. I didn't even ask for it. It was a question from them. Where I'm at now, what do you need? Um, went through that, and within a few less than a few weeks, really, it was done that quickly. I, you know, I, I can't even remember the timescales. The things were there. And so things that daunted me before when I was in the police about reading reports I used to take home to do and writing reports, they were being done very, very in very quick time.
0: Uh, that's interesting. And I think um, I've thought about this a lot in, in terms of getting buy in from different departments within organisations and getting them to help with your objectives, you know, in in your role, whether that's in HR or whether that's D&I or operational delivery or as a manager. And I think sometimes I feel like it's a jigsaw puzzle, right? And basically, you've all got your parts of the jigsaw puzzle that you need to complete, but there's some overlap, right? And But the problem is, it seems that the overlap is where It doesn't get done because everybody goes, well, that's the overlap bit. So we're all responsible for it in some way, shape or form. But none of us want to go there. So none of us do it. So what you end up with is these big gaps uh, uh, in in, in the middle of this puzzle um, that just don't connect. So the connecting pieces are not there. Um, And I think we still we still face this really uh, now today with D and I functions. And it's um, it's just not getting kind of woven into the fabric. Of kind of the organization of operational delivery and basically into people's job descriptions, I think, as the, like their accountability and responsibility. Um, and therefore, you're right, there's a real disconnect between kind of theoretically what leadership is saying or HR or whatever it may be, and then actually the tangible stuff that needs to be done or just simple, reasonable adjustments, right? That just need to be signed off yeah. um, and, and done to, rather than, I think, you you mentioned, um, which is thinking they're going to be done. And, and actually, when you land in, in the role, they've not been done at all.
1: Yeah, I think I've mentioned it outside of the um, interview. And I gave the organisation, I said, look, I'm going to be moving soon. So if we could make sure that in six, it's either between three and six months' time that the reasonable adjustments are in place for where I land, then that's fine. Don't do them here where I am do them for where i'm moving to and i got there and there was absolutely nothing when i got there and it was like starting from ground zero again in effect and having to kind of get it all going from where from where i was from my new from my new location but you know but i suppose um part of what you're talking about there as well is the north there's an increased focus on on DNI, and it almost feels to me by some of the conversations. we feel that neurodiversity is done, dyslexia is done, ADHD is done, and um, everybody's kind of got it now. I, I still don't think we. I still think we need to champion it and champion it massively and raise awareness. You know, I'm still having a lot of conversations with people, many of them quite senior people, and when I disclose to them when we're having kind of one to one chats, they'll disclose to me they're dyslexic, but they're saying, "Please do not say anything." We haven't told our, you know, who we're with and our, you know, the kind of area of work that we're in because it it will impact on us getting work. Now, to hear that when you've got successful people who are still worried about telling others within their profession that they are dyslexic or what other aspects of neurodiversity it is because they're worried about getting work in the future, that still for me is a big, clear, loud message that. We still need to be raising awareness around neurodiversity and the positives, the opportunities, and what people can do.
0: So interestingly, Keith, I posted something the other day, and this is something that's fascinated me since I started exploring neurodiversity: is the disproportionate amount of people who end up in prisons who are dyslexic. I think plenty of studies to show circa 50%. Uh, prisoners are dyslexic or have challenges in terms of their ability to read and write okay so that's not such a big surprise right but they're around one in three uh, a, a potentially circle one in three at adhd right so basically it's this amount of pe- kids um who um are adhd dyslexic are ending up in the prison system but then equally we've not got the right mechanisms to ensure that our our police departments, right, are, are, are diverse enough, neurologically diverse enough. And, you know, your experience goes to show that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, people can be pushed out, right, of leadership positions. And those leadership positions, theoretically, could have a massive impact on, I don't know, the youth justice system, for example. What are your thoughts on that? Um, what What do you see? What are your experiences? Anything you'd like to add?
1: Yeah, so just to underline and support what you're saying, really, I, I was quite shocked, really, because suddenly you become, you know, once, you know, in my position, I, you know, you suddenly got the stats, the statistics at your disposal, haven't you, and you can see them. So I was really quite shocked to see that 71% of children that are in the justice system, that all of them, whether or not they're in the secure estate, whether they've got a caution or some kind of outcome from from the court, 71 percent have got speech language or communication needs now that for me is sh- shocking really and it and it lends itself to is the system failing those children should something be done earlier and i think the answer is more than likely yes if you've got such a disproportionate number of children with speech language and communications this is across england and wales in the justice system, it's not just those in the secure; it's all of them. So you're talking of about thousands of children, probably about thirty thousand, roughly. That is a significant number. So, and if they're not being picked up before they come into the system, where else are we missing out on um, spotting these children so that we can support their needs and then they're able to be the best version of themselves? And I really do mean that. We say that phrase an awful lot, but it is around how we enabling people, children, to be the best of themselves. And if we're not supporting their needs or we haven't got processes in place to support needs that they've got, because I didn't know about me, but you'd have thought that others would have picked up something. So if those systems aren't in place, I think we're failing people.
0: That's really interesting. And thank you for for that stat, because that is, I mean, that is even more impactful and powerful when you start to talk about it in, in that context. And I think even, even more important that we have a better representation to serve those young people who become adults, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how we're engaging and communicating and trying to um, get them in my, in my area of responsibility, which is back into work, yeah. right? Or into work for the first time, it may be, yeah. um, which, is, which is really important. And if we don't understand how to connect, communicate, engage, um, talk on a, on a level um, that, that connects them, then, uh, well, we're wasting our time.
1: Yeah, I I, th- I, think so as well. You know, I think some of the um, works I've done with um, Amanda Kirby, Professor Amanda Kirby, where she, well, I, I did one of her do-it profiles, and I saw myself in a totally different light. I saw myself previously as somebody who had challenges which needed to be overcome. But when I did the profile, I actually saw uh, all my strengths. I've never seen my strengths displayed in that way through a neurodiverse lens. It was almost like you have these challenges, this is what we are gonna do, rather than you've got, you know, you're really good in relation to interaction with people, You're good at communication, you're good at problem solving, blah, blah, blah. All of that stuff being spelt out for you. I've never seen that before. So then you can focus on that. It doesn't mean you forget dealing with some of the, some of the things that you've got to overcome, but it also means you've got some real areas of strength for you to focus on as well. And, and build on and you understand then why you are good at certain things and perhaps less good at and less less good at others. So it gets you get to see yourself in a totally different totally different perspective. And I think we need more of that. It's not around kind of putting gloss over people and saying that you haven't got any challenges. All of us will have challenges in different ways. But it's how we we enable people to make the best of themselves and just by focusing what on what they can't do. We're not going to enable people to make the best of themselves. Brilliant,
0: thank you. Uh, so, what's next for you then? I mean, uh, you, you've got a, you have a lot going on, um, and and you're somebody in demand, and you're doing some incredible work. Um, just tell us around. Um, you know what you're going to be getting involved into.
1: Anything that you can share. What your plans are. Where we can find you. I suppose where you can find me. I'm very easy to find. I'm on I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm always happy to um, chat chat with people on on LinkedIn and share I- ideas and, and and thoughts. I want to do some more work around people who you know young people obviously because of, you know i'm the chair and I, I want to do some more work around stopping children getting into the justice system and also another bit around trying to make sure they don't come back into it if if, if they're in it and then the overrepresentation, representation there's an representation of minority kids within the justice system so i suppose that that's that bit and then there's some other bits of work i would like to do around people who are um not fully part of society you know they find it difficult to get work they haven't they haven't got the skills to get themselves into work they haven't got the confidence so it might be because they've been in prison or it might be because they are in an area where they you know are part of the city or part of a town where they just feel excluded from from jobs from the work situation and there are certain people who are excluded disproportionately from from work so it's about supporting doing something to work with others to support that that group of people want to build up their own um self-esteem and and agency and then the other bit is around supporting them with skills to get you know someone to get into work or to to work for themselves that's something which I love you know which I'm progressing at the moment and so and also the various charities that I'm involved in as well around. Using the power of sports. I've got some stuff that I'm doing around recognising 999 services, skills within the public sector, domestic domestic violence, also supporting offenders into work. So there's quite a few things that I'm I'm interested in, and um, and feel absolutely passionate about. Well, keep up the good
0: work, Keith. Uh, it's incredible, and uh, I'm so pleased to have had you on today um and yeah it's just really great to hear your your background your experiences uh and ultimately again for for people to see kind of um the the opportunities and the strengths that we bring right because that's uh i agree with you the thing around the spiky profile it's uh we we spend so much time probably in our lives uh <laughs> listening to the wrong people telling us where our weaknesses are it's nice to it's nice to have people focus on our strengths our oh, unique really uh,
1: abilities Thank you for the invitation. Also, thanks for what you're doing, championing this as well, because it's people like you that help spread the word, because you're going and having those conversations with the people who can influence and change things for a number of other people. So thanks for what you're doing as well.
0: No, thank you so much. And it is, the youth element is a big driver for me as well, especially, you know, if I consider my youth and uh, uh, and, and I just, yeah, I, th- I think there is too many, too many young people lost in the system um, who deserve better. Um, So, uh, you know, continue the incredible work uh, and I will support where I can. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Neurodiversity, eliminating kryptonite, enabling superheroes. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can like, share, comment, find us anywhere on any good podcasting Host, You can also do some further reading up and buy my book, uh, co-authored with Professor Amanda Kirby, Neurodiversity at Work. You can get it on Amazon with Kogan Page, our publisher, and pretty much any other good bookstore. Enjoy. Look forward to your feedback and keep listening to the show. Thank you.